Here we are standing on Sela Bamberger Ranch Preserve. We are at what we call the historical marker. I'm with April Sanson, who's the executive director of the Bamberger Ranch Preserve. This is where our story begins. What April calls a historical marker, well, it's actually more of a tombstone. And it looks like a miniature graveyard. That's that's what it looks like. It is um, there's a stone and wrought iron fence, um, and there's a uh, what looks like a tombstone um, inside that enclosure. If I didn't know any better, I would be a hundred percent certain that this was a real tombstone. I mean, it seems like someone is buried here, and what I want to know is who this tombstone belongs to. Anyway, so the um, the historical marker on on the, the the actual stone marker itself. Again, historical marker seems to be some kind of understatement. This is a bone zone. This is a graveyard. Think the scene in Pet Cemetery number two, where all your childhood nightmares manifested from. Okay, let's get to this tombstone. April's going to read it, and we're going to find out who this belongs to. It says, in memory of man, 2 million BC to AD 20 question mark. He who once dominated the earth, destroyed it with his wastes, his poisons, and his own numbers. Oh no, that tombstone belongs to us. It belongs to you, it belongs to me. It belongs to our entire human species. This bone-chilling moment reminds me of the Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol. I'm having a Ebenezer Scrooge moment where I am simultaneously hanging out with the ghost of Christmas present, past, and future. If our species doesn't change our behavior, this tombstone represents our end. Is this depressing? Is that depressing? Am I going to feel depressed about that? And then immediately thinking, no, no, that's not depressing at all. It's asking me to think about my role and the human global society's role in conservation and in stewarding the earth and stewarding the earth's resources. It's not depressing at all. It's asking me to open my mind. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to how regenerative agriculture can nourish our bodies, rebuild our soil, and restore our future. Hey everyone, this is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is made possible by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and, of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Today's story is all about water. You know that critically important natural resource that is essential for all life on Earth? Yep, that one. 71% of the Earth's surface is actually covered in water. 60% of our bodies are composed of water. 90% of our blood is water. We consume it for survival. All of our global food production depends on it. It's important. What happens when landscapes are mismanaged and the water dries up? What if anything can be done to restore a broken water cycle? 
In this episode, we're going to explore critical water issues as they relate to rainfall, soil health, biodiversity, and land management. Through the wisdom of pioneers in conservation, we're going to learn about the most important conservation tools on the planet. We're going to take a journey with a raindrop, and we'll venture underneath the earth to explore and understand aquifers. This actually sounds like a really good episode of the Magic School Bus. And if you'll sit back with me, I'll play the role of Miss Frizz all day long. This episode is about hope, forgiveness, and Mother Nature's capacity for healing. What I wanted to talk with you specifically about today is your journey with water. I'm sitting here today with J. David Bamberger, the most celebrated conservationist in the state of Texas. J. David Bamberger originally bought his ranch in 1969 and since has expanded it to 5,500 acres. To say that David Bamberger is a slight man crush of mine would be an understatement. This guy is a complete legend and a pioneer in understanding how rainfall works and how to capture it and recharge aquifers. Where it all began when you purchased the ranch over 50 years ago and how water changed over time and what you've observed to create those changes, specifically how water came from stone. And here's Mr. B explaining to us what the ranch looked like when he first came upon it 50 years ago. Well, most certainly it, it, it looks different today. Uh, it was so poorly managed historically that uh, people I met up here, including the Soil Conservation Service guy that I called him out to see if he wanted to give me some tips. And he said, I don't know what you're going to do with this place, uh, Mr. Bamber. I hope you're not going to try to raise cattle. It'll take 41 acres of this kind of land to support one cow. You just bought the worst piece of real estate in Blanco County. And he didn't know that to me that was a home run because that's what I was looking for. The state of Mr. Bamberger's newly acquired land was highly degraded. As a matter of fact, all land in North America has been degraded. All land globally has been degraded. And this degradation is through years of mismanagement and humans not caring for the land. Globally, we are only at a fraction of a percent of the productivity and the capacity of our natural resources. All land has been extracted of organic matter, soil carbon, and the biodiversity that once made it teeming with life. In 1969, when J. David first stepped foot on his new land, he was overwhelmed with the sight of cedar trees as far as the eye could see. These cedars were a monoculture. They're also known as ash juniper or mountain cedar. Regardless, they're low succession shrubby species that are highly undesirable. While they are native, they are invasive in the fact that they will take over and spread in areas where they should not historically belong. I wish I could step back in time and stand side by side with J. David Bamberger 50 years ago when he first stepped foot on this land. I wanted to see the monoculture of cedars as far as the eye could reach, and I wanted to understand better how that impacted the ecosystem. Now enter April Sanson. Good morning. My name is April Sansom, and I am the executive director of Sela Bamberger Ranch Preserve. And Taylor and I are standing in what we call the cedar thicket right now. The cedar thicket we are standing in is thick. 
And this type of undesirable shrubby landscape has quickly overtaken a mosaic ecosystem that would have predominantly been a diverse oak savanna teeming with life and with water. There is no water here. This is what J. David Bamberger first had to address in order to reset the ecosystem at his newly acquired ranch. I feel like we have transported back in time and the cedar monoculture is so dense that I feel overwhelmed and defeated by the thought of having to convert this monoculture back to a diverse polyculture. Back to April as she helps explain and describe the cedar thicket that we're currently standing in. The cedar thicket is a, the reason why it's here and the reason why we're standing in it is because it is an extraordinarily valuable teaching tool. We bring everybody that visits our ranch for a public tour or an environmental education experience to the cedar thicket. And the reason why is because it's, it's an, and it's, it's a living example of what this property looked like over 52 years ago when our founder, J. David Bamberger, first bought the first acquisition. It was 3,000 acres that he bought. And it was essentially a cedar monoculture. And that's what Taylor and I are standing in right now. We're looking at ash junipers that are, um, that's why it's called a thicket, because there's no understory. There's a a few little patches where some sunlight gets through that thick evergreen canopy. And there's a few little grasses that are tenaciously trying to um, take advantage of those patches of sunlight, but certainly not much. And when the entire 3,000 acres was this kind of ash juniper monoculture, there was nothing, there's not a lot of diversity in in this kind of, of landscape. And so there was nothing for wildlife to eat. Um, this, this kind of thicket certainly provides shelter, cover for wildlife if they're trying to hide from something, but they can't find anything to eat here. Oh my God, I'm so glad I don't live in a monoculture. Just like wildlife, humans crave diversity, diversity in our diet, diversity in our habitat. Being a wild animal living in a cedar monoculture is equivalent to being force fed beans every day for the rest of your life. Not just the assortment of beans that the world has in a perfect diverse setting, but one type of bean, very likely your least favorite kind of bean. I know if I was a wild animal living at Bamberger's Ranch 50 years ago, I would have gotten the hell out of there. So that's what J. David bought over 52 years ago. Um, Ash juniper is a native species. We really, really love uh, helping people learn that. I think there's there's a lot of um, information out there that ash juniper is bad, so it must not be a native species. And that's inaccurate. It's, it's, it's a native species. Um, the reason why it becomes an overgrown monoculture and a thicket like we're standing in right now is because of the suppression of natural processes, mainly fire, periodic fire, which we know that this landscape would have been subject to pre-European settlement. And the presence of bison. We know that this area of Texas would have been frequented by migrating bison. 
maybe not every year, but every three to five years, they would come this far down um, to the hill country of Texas and they would um, engage in what we like to call natural ecological engineering because of the fact that they were um, traveling down this far, depositing lots of organic matter into the soil, using those wonderful spade-shaped hoofs to um, stomp out the little ash juniper seedlings that were trying to encroach on the upland areas. All of those things, the suppression and the eradication of those natural bison living on the landscape um, led to, and then in addition to that, overgrazing of domestic cattle. Okay, what April's touching on here is critically important for the story. She's saying that the land has been degraded by removing the natural ecological system that co-evolved with the savanna landscape that this area once was. She's specifically calling out fire and large herds of bison. But not only were these architectural powerhouses removed from the landscape, early European settlers came. And when these pioneers settled our area, they had no idea how to graze their livestock in a semi-arid, semi-brittle environment. I bet you can guess what happens next. Starts with an O, ends with a G. Anyone? Overgrazing. Yep, these early pioneers in our area had no idea how to manage their cattle in an environment like ours. Not only did large herds of cattle, but also sheep and goats have continuous access to native rangeland, but the actual grasses were never given any opportunity to recover between times and periods of drought. This eventually caused the grasses to die out and bare soil to dominate our ecosystem. I'm looking at this cedar thicket and it is thick. I can see why you're why the name thicket exists. I mean, you couldn't walk out in that. You couldn't walk through that or you'd get torn up. You have to kind of bob and weave. You lose visibility at about 50, 60 feet. And I mean, there are some desirable native hardwood trees in here getting choked out right now. That's um, right. There's, you know, some dead or dying, unhealthy looking Spanish oaks, red oaks. And lots of bare soil. Like if I, if we look at that grass you were pointing out, I mean, we're still over 99% bare soil in here. That's exactly right. And that has serious implications for those significant rainfall events that we were talking about earlier, um, because there's not a whole lot to hold that soil in place when that happens. Yep. When I look at cedar thickets like this, a part of me wonders, you know, if, if April, you could rent. 2,000 bison for one day and put them in here, how dramatically different this place would look. Because when we put our bison in our rangeland where we do have some immature cedars, they go out of their way to hook them out of the ground, to rub their body on them, trample them. And I mean, they, they do a good job in clearing that for us. That's, that's really neat, Taylor, because... Um, Number one, I do have dreams of, of bison uh, helping us with our landscape management here on Bamberger Ranch Preserve. But secondly, that's really neat. I, I, I'm so glad to hear you say to describe that behavior of the bison uh, because I, I didn't know that. I knew that they would stomp it out when they were, you know, 
traveling through the grassland looking for food. Um, but how neat to to hear you describe their behavior mm-hmm. around those ash they, juniper seedlings. They, they'll go out of their way to eradicate them. That, and especially our biggest bulls. It's almost like uh, it angers them and they want it to be a savanna. They want it to be an old growth. And so that, that biological itch within them, they're scratching it literally scratching it on those trees. That's neat. It's a good evolutionary strategy, right? If you're a bison. Absolutely. Man, <laughs> I can't believe this is this is where the ranch began. What a task Jay David must have uh, took on head on. And I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin because this is a thick monoculture of cedar as as far as the eye can see. Absolutely, Taylor. That's right. And and that lends to the 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 wonderful innovation, creativity, and stubborn determination of J. David Bamberger, because you're absolutely right. This could be overwhelming. And not only that, but also in those days when he first bought the property in 1969. Ecological restoration was not a thing. You know, we know now that we can go to various um, outstanding universities around the nation and get a degree in ecological restoration. But J. David was literally writing the book. And that was one of the things that inspired him to create his own nonprofit where he could help people not make the same mistakes that he did and help people learn from his experiences in restoration. Okay, I'm dying to know, what was the first thing J. David did to start to mitigate the cedar monoculture that had dominated his landscape? Well, let's just ask him. Number one, cutting out undesirable brush or even brush that was was desirable, but it was over. There was too much of it. The place had been abused over years with people that just put livestock on it, whether it was sheep or goats or cattle. There was no grass, and like when the soil conservation man told me it would take 41 acres to support a cow, what he was telling me, he says, look around. And if you see enough grass to support a cow, that's where you ought to start working. (laughs) Jay David had an idea and conducted a small-scale experiment on his ranch. He had a hunch that the cedar that had overrun his landscape threw off some kind of ecological balance. And so at a very small scale, he started removing cedar trees. After only one season of cedar removal, what he saw next blew his mind. We started to notice something. We noticed green spots on the side of some of these old hills. And it was mid-July or something, they said, wait a minute, what is that green? Well, there's no roads to get there, so I trafused up the hill and got up there, and I didn't see anything except this green spot, and I started putting my hands on it, and I could feel the dampness. Then I came back the next day, and I started to dig little holes, and sure enough, there was water under there. What followed over the next couple decades was a true act of superhuman strength. Jay David, along with thousands of volunteers, converged on the ranch and selectively started removing the cedars from his landscape. Now, the goal wasn't to wage war against the cedar tree. 
the goal and the intention was to reset the ecosystem back to the right balance. Now, instead of 100% monoculture of cedar, Bamberger was shooting to have 15% of his landscape with that native cedar tree. And while it's easy to focus on the removal of cedar as the catalyst for the regeneration of his ecosystem, the way Jay David thinks about it more is that he was allowing biodiversity to exist. He was encouraging grass species to come to the property. And for him, that was way more exciting than the mechanical removal of his least favorite tree. Now back to Jay David Bamberger. Yeah, trees and grass. Well, how, that's what it is. And how do those work? How, do, how does that work to help capture rainfall? Oh, well, my, that's quite simple. The root systems. Did you guys catch that? Mr. Bamberger said this is simple. Yet, this is something that is so rarely understood. Grasses are highly effective at capturing rainfall. In fact, according to Mr. Bamberger, Grasses are the greatest conservation tool ever created. How do grasses capture rainfall? Well, let me help you deconstruct this. So when it rains, grasses function in a couple ways. First, that surface runoff is slowed down by the above ground blades of grass. Secondly, below ground, that grass plant has tremendous amounts of roots that are actually changing the physical structure of the soil. Whereas when the soil might be compacted or hardened, those roots create porosity. They create the opportunity for rainfall to infiltrate and seep into the soil. Thirdly, grass plants are fantastic for capturing atmospheric carbon, sequestering that and cycling it into the soil where it belongs. Now, soil that has high concentration of carbon or soil organic matter, you can use those interchangeably, is more effective at acting as a sponge to hold rainfall. For every 1% increase in soil organic matter, a single acre of land can hold 20,000 gallons of rainfall. So to convert that to something that's a little bit more understandable, for every 1% increase in soil organic matter, a single acre can capture and hold one inch of rainfall. Now after that rainfall gets captured by the soil, tiny little miracles begin to happen. Jared Holmes is a biologist and zoologist over at Bamberger Ranch Preserve. He also helps us with our bison field harvest and is a master field butcher. Now, Jared's right here beside me, and he just got done processing a 900-pound North American bison. And we're doing this, which I'm super grateful for, but he didn't even wash his hands. I'm a pretty gross guy. I mean, I am a biologist, so, you know, it doesn't bother me. Jared smells like the land. He smells like a bison. Yeah, and that's just how I smell normally. You know, I'm always cutting into something. I'm always outside. I don't shower a whole lot, but, you know, most of my baths are, are in the creek. Yeah, and you probably have a pretty good biome, and you probably don't get sick very often. I actually don't. Now, Jared is the guy you hope you're with if you ever get lost in the wilderness. Or, for that matter of fact, if there's a zombie apocalypse. He knows which plants are edible and which plants are poisonous. He knows how to build shelter. He knows how to make primitive tools. I mean, this guy knows how to find water. So out at the ranch, whenever I'm stumped, whenever I see a new species of plant or bird or animal, reptile, 
anything, I text a picture to Jared. And within seconds, he tells me the life story, the history of that particular species. And without further ado, Jared is going to talk to us about the journey of a raindrop at Bamberger Ranch Preserve. There's there's Miller Creek there on the ranch. So it's either going to go into Miller Creek, which will flow into the Pedernales, which will flow into the Colorado, which flows not to Colorado, but to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so when you think about that, that's water that starts on the ranch is going through the city of Austin, through the city of Houston into the bay. So the way we take care of that landscape sponge is so very, very important. So that that water that's allowed to infiltrate, you know, goes this long journey, about 120 feet all the way down through that honeycomb rock, you know, and with rainwater being slightly acidic, if it doesn't, um, if it doesn't become neutral or more alkaline as it's going down through that root system, it's starting to eat those rocks away a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, and that opens up the, the aquifers too. And then it starts hitting these containment layers, that Glenrose formation. And then it takes this weird journey of sometimes it goes sideways and, and there's just a tiny little slope. Um, and other times it just goes straight down. And when it hits that down where those layers meet, if it's not contained, it comes out as a spring. And if it is contained, that underground lake starts to, to fill up. And that's the component Mr. Bamberger didn't realize. He saw the creek going through there and he knew that they had water when we had the seasonal floods, but he didn't know by getting the grasses reestablished that those underground lakes that we call hills um, are storing water now. And after a few years of the grasses being established and some average rain, he got very lucky with his rainfall, um, you know, springs sprung and we call them little tiny miracles. Uh, and it's, it's awesome to walk by them and be able to point them out. Isn't this mind blowing? The actual hills surrounding this ranch are above ground lakes. I mean, who would have thought? Who could have possibly known? Well, here's how it works. When you think of the way these perched aquifers and the Edwards aquifer works, it's what we call a recharging aquifer. It's got two layers of rock. Um, there's this Edwards limestone feature, which is a honeycomb rock, uh, and it's filled with holes. And as a porous rock, it allows the water to go through it. And then that that hits a layer called the Glenrose. Think bedrock. It's impermeable. So you've got permeable rock on top of um, impermeable rock and where they meet is where the springs come out. And so when Mr. Bamberger started the restoration project on the hilltops and got the grasses established again, that opened up the porosity of the soil. And, it, and imagine all that compaction from having juniper on top, from being overgrazed. The roots of the grass plants really started to just break everything up and reach down, down, down into those perched aquifers. So the way our aquifer works is the same as the Edwards limestone or the Edwards aquifer there, the, the big blue whale that goes um, from the city of San Antonio through the city of Austin. Um, if you have grass on your recharge zone, it recharges very, very quickly. Um, but that that grass component or that landscape sponge is the first, you know, kind of goal. Okay, I think it's really important that we slow down, hit rewind, and recap all this amazing information that we're hearing. Because it sounds too good to be true. I mean, if your mind's not getting blown, you should go make sure you have a pulse. Because this stuff, it's a miracle, right? And so, 
First things first, Mr. Bamberger identifies a monoculture of cedar trees as a problem. After mechanically removing those cedar trees, well, he starts noticing biodiversity return to his property. In particular, desirable deep-rooted perennial grasses. These grass plants are the heroes of the story because not only is the above ground organic matter or grass blade slowing down rainfall, giving it an opportunity to be absorbed by the soil, but what's happening below ground is that massive roots are physically altering the structure of the soil. It's breaking it apart. It's allowing rainfall to infiltrate for the first time. Now, the deeper these roots go, the deeper the water flows. Eventually, so much rainfall is getting captured that the above ground perched aquifers are recharging for the first time. After the first few effective rainfalls, these perched aquifers volume increases to the point at which tiny seeps and springs begin to form. Rain and water is literally coming from dry rock where it previously didn't exist. That's so cool. You know, so many people get caught up with, hey, you know, what's your average rainfall at the land you're managing? Or even, you know, Jared and I sometimes text each other back and forth. And we're like, did you get any rain yesterday? Oh, no, I didn't either. But, you know, like for us, it's it's not it doesn't really matter. It's not how much rain did we get? It's how much rain are we actually capturing? How much rain are we utilizing? And that's the cool thing that we can talk about here in regenerative agriculture. And Jared, you know, he can answer that and he can say we caught all of it. Yeah, exactly. Unless it's one of those just ragers yeah. that, you know, comes down 16 inches at a time, which is, we got to be prepared for that in the hill country. Yeah. And the best preparation for that is a grassland. After nearly 50 years of management, Bamberger Ranch Preserve is the crown jewel of the Texas hill country. This place is teeming with life. And I'm talking about all life. Everyone is invited to participate in this ecosystem. The amount of birds, the amount of grasses, the amount of insects, the amount of reptiles. I've never seen anything like this in my life. As a matter of fact, if I was abducted on one of my morning jogs by, say, a white sprinter van, maybe I was tranquilized, blindfolded, tossed in the back. If I had lost all sense of time and space and I woke up in a field at the Bamberger Ranch Preserve, I would be fairly certain that I woke up in the African Serengeti. It feels like I've gone back in time and I'm witnessing pre-European settlement of Texas. I mean, this place is wild. The grasses are as tall as my shoulders. They wave in the wind in synchrony and harmony and it's just absolutely stunning. The hillsides are enchanting. The colors that are captured and reflected off their walls are unlike anything I've ever seen in Central Texas. And if I had to consolidate the beauty of this place into one single word, I would attribute it to biodiversity. This enriched community of life is critical for the story. It's critical for the health of the land. And it's a fundamental principle in which Bamberger Ranch Preserve is demonstrating such success. And one of the most successful stories of all is the story of how the ranch went from 50 species of documented birds in 1969 to over 221 species today. Biological diversity in the form of birds. We have, um, we're very proud of our grassland bird um, population. 
as we know, of the groups of birds across the country, grassland birds have suffered the most in terms of habitat loss um, and other factors that are really having a negative effect on their population. So uh, we're proud of, of the grassland birds that we see every day here out on the on the preserve. And that is a perfect opportunity for me to kind of talk about bird diversity as part of our broader wildlife diversity here on Bamberger Ranch Preserve. In 1969, um, J. David knew already that birds were something that it would be important for him to keep track of. He was also active in the conservation community already, and so he had friends who were interested in protecting habitat for birds and um, thinking about birds as an ecological indicator. And so we had bird biologists and, and other folks come out. And over the span of an entire year, they would, um, they would conduct bird surveys. And they would, um, the, the number of different species that they would uh, observe over the span of an entire year was 48 species. Now... That's very, very different. We will have one, we still do bird surveys, um, winter, spring, summer, and fall. And in the course of one survey, it's not unusual for us to have a greater number of species than they would find over the whole year before the ecological restoration began. And Equally as importantly, our bird list on Sela Bamberger Ranch Preserve now is 221 species. And so that is a very, very strong indicator of landscape and ecological health. That's so great. I, you know, consumers are often asking questions like, well, how do I know if land is managed appropriately? You know, I'm not a, I'm not a farmer. I'm not a land steward or a rancher. What do I look for? And one of the things I always say is look for birds. Absolutely. And, and I think you just nailed that as birds as an environmental indicator for management practices. And are they conducive for life or are they, you know... Uh, a deterrent for life. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and, and birds are so important for that. If you think about all the different species on our list of 221, and you think about all the different habitat requirements of those different species, then you know that we have a healthy, diverse landscape. That is, um, you know, the golden cheek warbler is a wonderful little uh, species of warbler that it has a very interesting life history because it migrates between central Texas, USA, and Honduras. That's as far as it goes. It's a neotropical migrant, and it is dependent here in central Texas on large, old-growth type ash juniper trees. It's, again, a wonderful way to remember that ash juniper is an important part of our landscape. Those little birds depend on those large ash junipers because they peel the bark to make their nests. It's also important re to remember that the golden cheek warblers are dependent on stands of hardwoods because that's where they find their food. So they need the ash juniper to build their home. They need the stands of hardwoods to 
go to the grocery store. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's always about diversity. Exactly. Mother nature abhors a monoculture. She's always welcoming diversity. That's exactly right. Lovely. And now back to water. By this point in the story, I'm actually working up quite a thirst. I'm sitting here just holding my Nalgene and I'm feeling like the water inside of it is a little inadequate. The groundwater on our ranch is almost the opposite of the Bamberger Ranch Preserve. Our water is extremely shallow. Our ranch is just adjacent to the Pertinalis River. And because we live in an agricultural community, my wife and I are insistent on filtering it. It's time we go find a spring, and I'd really like to drink directly from the source. And who better to get hydrated with other than my bison smelling friend, Jared? All right, so Taylor, this is this is where we are. So we just left the lake patio, and this is that teaching spring that I've, I've told you about, and you can see how it's just ripping out here. And when you think about what's around us, oh, look, a big, mature juniper tree. Oh, look, there's some so tall across the bank and there's a fig tree and there's a cherry tree and there's a walnut. There's so much diversity down here. And that creek water is crystal clear. And what do you see? Well, you're seeing that containment layer, that impermeable limestone. And so right here, if we were to dig back this bank of the um, creek, we're not going to do it. We don't want to put the sediment in the water. Um, but you would see that honeycomb rock, that Edwards limestone. And so this is that transition zone. And just look at that water pouring out of there. It's pretty incredible. So let's just drink it. Let's just get down there. Let's just get dirty, push-up style. You can stand in the water, feel the energy. Um, but I'll, I'll show you how. Give me a second. Let me get down. Yeah, you don't have a cup, dude. Why are you going to do this? You bring a straw or something? Oh, no, I'm just going to dip my lips. Oh, I love this. Okay. I mean, that's, that's right off the tap. Okay, tell me. I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to drink spring water this fresh. Is it? How do you describe it? What are you experiencing? Oh, tasting notes. This is good. I hmm, I haven't really thought about it, but it's kind of uh, it's a little sweet. You know, it's got a lot of dissolved minerals in it. Uh, it's very hot. It's very very heavy in um, calcium, so it's kind of like oh man, it just feels so cold. And so fresh, like it's, it's like when you tap a keg and that, that first glass comes out, it's like, oh, wow, this is like, this is nectar from the gods. <laughs> okay. I got to try this, man. Uh, all right. Scoot over. All right. Get out. Get out. All right. Wow, man. That is incredible. This water to me, it's, it's charged. It's, it's alive. It's wild. It's not domesticated. And, um, yeah, that contrast for me, I, I feel like drinking this water right out of a, a spring and how clean it is and all the, the goodness that's in it. It's almost like the Delta. It's, it, you know, drinking bottled water or water from a city is like eating a commodity industrialized pig. Whereas this is eating a heritage, slow growth, pasture raised, just perfect specimen of a pig. That, there's that big of a difference. Dude, you get to drink this every day? Every day. It's on tap. The, the, it, it, I mean, this is going, we're flushing our, our uh, toilets with this water. Oh I mean, so it's really special when we have guests out and we get to tell them like, I mean, Nestle would 
filter this. And, you know, when we show them how we capture it, it never sees sunlight. And so it's oxygenated as it's coming downhill. So it's that that's that fresh perspective that that you can really just taste in there. And, you know, Mr. Bamberger is 93 and he's doing real well. He's got real strong bones, lots of dissolved minerals in here. And it's special. You know, I, I do not take the water for granted. Not one bit. I tried to get Mr. Bamberger to, um, you know, allude to the power of the water as keeping him so youthful almost turning 94 in a couple of weeks and he wouldn't he wouldn't admit to it probably because he doesn't want poachers coming out here and yeah yeah uh, <laughs> taking it I, uh, you're yeah gonna live forever man you are gonna live forever i hope you know I, uh, my son's growing like a weed and and this is what he drinks every day we even send it to school for him he's not allowed to have the tap water wow well thanks for sharing this very special experience this is this is something i'm never gonna forget yeah, man, it is. And I'm, and I'm glad we got to do it. And I'm glad this spring was running. And it is. It's very, very special. Well, I'm glad you guys captured the rainfall and utilized it and recharged your aquifer. So thank you. Thank you for managing the land appropriately and teaching others how to do the same. Yeah, man, that's that's the story of the ranch. Holy moly. That was the coolest way to ever end a story. I mean, this whole episode led up to this point like a beautiful crescendo. We started out talking about rainfall. We talked about how to capture rainfall, the the magical nature of biodiverse, deep-rooted perennial grasses in that process, you know, through their roots, through land management, capturing that water and infiltrating it into the soil, recharging an aquifer, refilling that aquifer to the point at which seeps form and springs begin to flow where springs were not flowing for over a hundred years. It's just amazing. And then to get to drink that water directly out of the ground, that was a once in a lifetime opportunity that I'm never going to forget. My entire perspective has changed. Not only has my body been nourished, but my soul has been rehydrated drinking directly from that spring. And now to loop back with J. David Bamberger to take this baby across the finish line. I, I've, I drank from one of the seeps last week. I, I did a tour with Jared and we drank from the seep that was over by Madrone Lake up, up, up where the water comes into the oh, lake. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And it was amazing. It <laughs> felt like it supercharged our bodies. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll tell you what, you can you can you can talk about something like that and people will walk away thinking they have it really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, this kind of leads me to a thought, but what's your secret to living such a long life? Uh, well, thank you. Well, I, I, I want to get a little further. I am now. I got about five more weeks or so or <laughs> before I'm 94. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> Well, the secret is, uh, is first of all, I think has a lot to do with how you take care of yourself, what you eat, and what you drink, and how you live otherwise. And I, I think that uh, one of the keys to everything is uh, be positive about life itself. Be positive that you're expanding your philosophies to others. Smile, laugh, joke. We, I've been fortunate to have two wives. Both are deceased. 
but I've been fortunate to have wonderful people in my life that went along with and made it easier to laugh and smile and joke. People that were serious about the what we were really doing here and accepted their responsibilities very gleefully. You won't find any negative thinking here. Yeah. If I had negative thinking, buddy, I, I kind of found some place else for him to go. Wow. What incredible words of wisdom. It's very rare that you get to speak with a 93-year-old man, and especially one that's as cognitively intact as Mr. Bamberger. Not only is this guy reading the Wall Street Journal, still checking his email, still going to the office every single morning of his life, but he's actually out on the land. He's still teaching. He's still demonstrating. His life passion is being pursued until his very last breath. There's so much wisdom that comes out of J. David Bamberger and so many lessons from the full life that he has lived. But from everything that I've observed from Mr. B, there's one lesson that rises to the top. What I'm most conscious of, what I'm most aware of when I'm spending time with J. David or when I'm at the Bamberger Ranch Preserve is Mother Nature's capacity for forgiveness. Mother Nature is self-healing, self-regulating, and self-perpetuating. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude that Mother Nature's capacity for forgiveness is greater than our own species' capacity for being arrogant. One of the most amazing parts of this story is that so much positive change has happened in just 50 years. And I know some of you guys are like, well, holy shit, 50 years is a long time. But let's get over ourselves, people. That's 50 years in a in the human life cycle. Sure, that's a good chunk of time. But what we're really talking about is 50 years in the life of a 4.5 billion year old planet Earth. That right there, that's a blip on the radar. So if you have any doubts about Mother Nature's capacity and willingness to heal herself, well, I can't think of a more promising and encouraging story. These guys literally reset a degraded system that was void of life, didn't have any water, and through management, managing in Mother Nature's image, not only did they bring back an assortment of every single species that should have belonged in that ecosystem, but they created water. Water came from stone. Water was the life force. It was the blood that resurrected an entire ecosystem. Springs sprung. Creeks flowed. Life was abundant. And these were springs and creeks that had long been forgotten about. They had been dry for over a hundred years. There was no pre-recorded history. There was no known living history of water on this property but yet through appropriate management looking into mother nature's image asking for her guidance for her grace for her wisdom water flowed on this property now here's the exciting part what if we took these principles of covering bare soil planting deep-rooted perennial plants eliminating monocultures 
and we applied this on a global scale. Imagine what would happen. Communities around the world would come together, teeming with life, being able to be autonomous in their food production, creating habitat for wildlife, promoting biodiversity. This is truly incredible, and this is the potential that we have. This is the legacy of J. David Bamberger. All right, all right, all right. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I had a ton of fun making it. I am extremely hydrated, both spiritually, emotionally, and physically right now. And I'd like to give a special thanks to all the wonderful people that co-collaborated with me on this particular podcast. I'd like to call out April Sanson. Thank you for your time. Jared Holmes. Thank you. I hope you take a bath before I see you next. Mr. Bamberger, the man, the myth, the legend, my best 93-year-old friend. And he's about to turn 94 in just a couple weeks. Anyways, what a special group of people that I got to hang out with and interact. I just feel so energized and optimistic about the future, future of our civilization, the future of our planet. We got this, guys. If you're feeling inspired to learn more about the Bamberger Ranch, head over to BambergerRanch.org. On that website, there's a ton of information that's just so inspiring and so critical. You're going to love it. Make sure you head over to the upcoming workshops and events page and look at the calendar and you can schedule a time to go out to the ranch. And if that public community event or workshop doesn't work out, they also do private tours. And on a private tour you'll get to hang out with Jared himself in the flesh and drink out of the same seep that I drank out of. So that will connect us in a very deep and special, very meaningful way. We'll become water brothers and sisters. And finally, none of this would have been possible without the support of Force of Nature. Head over to forceofnature.com and have regeneratively sourced meats delivered to your door anywhere in the continental United States. Yep, you can be enjoying a grass-fed, regeneratively sourced bison tenderloin that actually helped restore a broken water cycle. And that's it. The end. I hope that you have very gentle rain this spring and that your soil is able to capture every single drop of that rain and what your perennial deep-rooted grasses don't utilize, well, let's put that in the aquifer and let's create springs together. Farewell. Farewell.